Welcome to Canvas, a show all about iPad productivity. My name is Fraser Spears, and as always, I'm joined by Federico Vitici. Hello, Fraser. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. I just uh, It's been a busy week in terms of Apple-related purchases. My, mm-hmm. wallet, my wallet is hurting, Fraser. I bought an iPhone 7 Plus and an Apple Watch Ooh. Series 2 okay. all in the same nice. week. My nice. accountant is going to be upset. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just dropped a fortune at the Apple store last night as well, but unfortunately I was just paying for a broken iPhone. <laughs> yeah, my, my wife's iPhone 6 had... Uh, one of our daughters dropped it and broke the screen oh. and then uh, and the battery was dying as well so it was like a full swap out price a full price oh, nice. Nice. Um, but i also picked her up the the uh, apple smart battery case which i thought was really cool oh. you know a lot of people made a lot of fun of that but that's oh. that a pretty nice design so there was a whole section in my iphone 7 story uh, about the smart battery case because mm-hmm. people like to make fun of it so much but i think it's actually quite clever because it's a, it's got those integrations that no other uh, third party battery case can do like yeah. the way that it automatically switches on and then it, you know provides power i think it's super clever um i, I don't mind the design too much mm-hmm. i actually for the two and a half months that I used my iPhone 7 before upgrading to the to the 7 Plus, I kept it on all the time. I I'm, I really like it. Yeah, I, I, I was really impressed with it. And the, the other thing that I liked about it beyond the other battery cases is that it's got a lightning port on the outside, whereas most of them have got a micro USB. And the, there's so much kind of compatibility issues like nightstand, yeah. charging cables, and in the car and everything that, you know, trying to kind of convinced my wife that it'd be great to just swap out all the cables in your life for this other kind of cable for your battery case yeah. uh, that wasn't going to work so it's like here's a battery case it's just the same as normal keep going and uh she's absolutely delighted with it yeah 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 it's a very very nice device so fraser um we're approaching the final part of our uh, workflow episodes we still have a this one and another one to go i think uh, we're also approaching the end of the year, which, you know, it's good timing for us. The two today, may happen at the same time. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> nice coincidence. Um, we talked about the basics of workflow. We talked about variables. Then we covered app integrations and what you can do with third-party apps in workflow. And now we want we need to talk about the web because there's a whole world of possibilities when it comes to workflow and actions that don't use native iOS apps, but use the web, use web services and web web APIs. Because in addition to, to having native actions that launch apps with iOS automation through URL schemes, Workflow is also capable of going beyond actions, beyond um, th- third-party app actions, and it can talk to web services. And it can let you do things that don't require to to have an app installed. And there are two types of web actions in Workflow. There are the built-in web actions, and those are you know the usual ones with a pretty interface, with a you know their pre-packaged actions where the Workflow developers took care of supporting uh, a web service with an in- with a with a GUI with an interface. And then you can get dirty. You can you can roll your own. You can use the get contents of URL action combined with a bunch of other actions related to dictionaries and other things that we'll talk about later. And you can write your own integration with a web API. This is really powerful, and, and, and it's a recent addition to Workflow. Uh, I think it's uh, in, in version 1.6, uh, the Workflow developers uh, added this extended support for uh, web APIs. And under the hood, even even 
if the web actions that come with an interface and the get contents of URL action seem different. Technically, they're based on the same concept. Uh, the, simply, the difference is with the first type, the workflow developers made an interface for you. So you don't have to actually talk to the API. You just need to log into a web service account and play around with variables. In the second case, they require a little more setup because you need to actually do the web programming yourself. But as we'll see, it's actually easier to do that in workflow than in traditional IDEs or you know by scripting with Python or any other language that you may use with the web. So let's start with the first type. Um, these web actions, they let you talk to web services that are prepackaged, so you don't have to write, write the integration yourself. All you need to do, usually, is log into an account. And these actions, these supported services, are some of the popular ones. There's Dropbox, there's Todoist for to-dos, there's Trello, uh, there's Pocket, so you can... Uh, save items to Pocket, you can get articles from Pocket. There's WordPress, this is very powerful, one of my favorite ones, so you can publish to your blog. There's Slack, which is the, you know, the popular team communication service which we also use here at Canvas. And then there are two types of actions that use the web, use a web API, but they don't need you to log into any account. And these are the Google Maps action, which talks to the Google Maps API, doesn't launch the Google Maps app on your phone. It talks to the Google API. And then there's the, the combination of the App Store and iTunes Store actions. So what some people don't know is that Apple offers an iTunes API that is free to use, doesn't require any authentication. And developers can use it to look up a bunch of details about apps. And Workflow integrates with the iTunes Store and App Store APIs to let you look up iTunes and App Store content. So you can, for example, build your own search for the App Store inside Workflow, which sometimes is even faster and more accurate than using the App Store itself. Um, so these are the, the the traditional. I think I think I covered them all, right? Uh, there, there are mm -hmm. no other web services, and I yeah. I use them all quite a bit, Fraser. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I was just thinking as you were speaking there. One of the ones that I use when I'm preparing the show notes for this show is I have a workflow script that will uh, if I if we mention a, an app on the show. I write it in the notes in a, in a bulleted list and then I just highlight the name of the app and copy it and then have a workflow that takes the clipboard, searches it in the app store, presents me the top five items yeah. and then um, I just hit the one I want and it copies that in the form of a link and, and, and some, the name of the app, the app back onto the clipboard and then I just paste it over the selection that I had. So that's a huge time saver just to, as a simple uh, example yeah. of that. Yeah, these are, again... You, you're free to do whatever you want. So we want to we want to cover the basics. So I'm gonna go over all of these uh, built-in web actions quite quickly. Um, I want to start with Todoist, which is my task manager of choice. We've talked about this before. There's an episode when we did the mini series on task managers. I recommend you go check it out. There's going to be a link in the show notes. But Todoist, because it's a Unlike other task managers, it's a web service and, it, and it's got an API so other apps and other services can talk to it. And Workflow has an action to add a new task in Todoist. And there's, a, there's, a, there's quite a, a, a few things you can control when you, create, when you create a new task in Todoist. You can specify a title for the task, so the actual name of the task that you want to add. But you can also specify the project or you can enter a date. And in any of these fields that you will see in this action, 
you can either put some text in so you can type manually every time or you can use the ask when run um, token to do so or you can use variables so you can build your workflow and say for example that you want to type the name of the task and then do something else if you save the name of the task to a variable then you can insert the variable in the title field of the of the to do is action but what's interesting here is that in the date field you can either use it an ask when run variable so when the action comes up you will be able to type in the date manually but you can also use workflow's own date variables and what some people don't know is that Workflow has a basic support for natural language input when it comes to dates. So you can type in stuff like tomorrow at noon or Friday at 2 p.m. And Workflow will parse that date correctly and it will convert that to a proper date strings that you know programs need. And if you use a date action, for example, with an ask when run variable, you will be asked to type a date and save that to a variable call it date, and then use the date variable into the field, into the, into the, in the Todoist action. And basically, what you will do is, Workflow will take the date that you just typed, it will convert that to a date format that Todoist likes, and basically, you just recreated the Todoist natural language input inside Workflow. And you can also do other... Yeah, that's very nice. I, I actually have a workflow to do this uh, because I don't like how the official Todoist extension saves uh, web pages sometimes. So I, I basically just remade my own <laughs> Todoist cool. extension there with workflow in Safari. Uh, you can also do things like adding notes. And so, you, you know, if you want to add a comment to a task, this is very fast. It runs in a couple of seconds and it just requires you to log into to do is from workflow, which is quite convenient because there's a mini browser inside the app that has a one password button. Yeah, so you, okay. you tap it, you open the login, you authenticate, you say, yes, I want to grant workflow permission to access my account, and you're done. You can you can use to do in workflow. This is very convenient. And if I'm understanding you right, this is going to be a really nice experience when you run the workflow as well, because Unlike you know, when we talked about integration with OmniFocus, when you finally send the information you've collected into OmniFocus, the app will switch to OmniFocus because it's a local yes. open URL. Whereas here, what we're doing is we're talking directly across the internet to the Todoist yep. server. Yep. And therefore, you don't have to swap yet on the iOS device. You don't have to swap context yep. into another app yep. and then back into the workflow. So in that way, it's even cleaner. And then you pick up those, those tasks in your Todoist app later on. Yeah, that's right. Nothing basically launches. You just stay inside Workflow. You talk to the web API, and you can actually create a task in Workflow, then open Todoist on a second device, and you will see the new task right away because it just goes off to the Todoist uh, cloud and then back down to your other devices. It's very cool. Mm -hmm. um, another, another type of action that I use all the time is the integration with Dropbox. Uh, this allows you to do a bunch of interesting things inside Workflow. You can get and you can create files and you don't have to switch to the Dropbox app manually. Again, you just do it inside Workflow. So for example, let's say that you have a file that you access on a regular basis and you know where that file is because the path in Dropbox is always the same. While you using the get Dropbox file action, you can say, I know that I have a file at this path with this name, so get this file for me. And Workflow will 
talk to your Dropbox account, get the file, which you can then save to a variable, and you can do things like, well, now I want to share the file so I can use a share with extensions action. And basically, you just made a custom Dropbox file picker. Or you can say, I want to get a file from Dropbox, and then if it's a photo, I want to you know, share it with a social extension like Linky, which is this excellent custom tweet sheet. Or you can do things like, I want to get a file and then I want to share a link to this file. You can also do that in Workflow because there's a share Dropbox link, uh, which is a sub-action. Uh, it basically requires you to get a file from Dropbox first. Once you have the file, you can chain in the share link action and what Workflow will do is, okay, now I just um, downloaded this file from Dropbox. Now I'm going to share the link because I know it's a Dropbox file. And then you can copy the link to the clipboard or you can send it to someone else. And you just made a custom Dropbox file sharing utility that you can use anytime you want. Cool. It's, re it's really quite impressive. I, I use the Dropbox actions all the time just because it's faster to get the files that I know are always in the same location in my account instead of having to open the app. And the Dropbox app is decent, but it doesn't let you get to your favorite files quickly. So with, Drop with Workflow and Dropbox, I, can, I, can, I have a bunch of templates. Uh, so you know, if I have a PDF form that I need to send out or some images that I need to share with the team, I just use the, the Workflow actions. That's cool. I have another example of that, which is is probably my most complex workflow, but it's called New Canvas episode. And as you know, we share our, our audio edit files through Dropbox. And what happens is, you know, Fed, there's a folder called slash canvas in our Dropbox. And Federico will upload his recording uh, with the episode number and dot whatever the extension is. And my workflow will run check first of all to see whether or not his file's there and if it's not it will just stop because there's no point in going on until I've got that file but then it will it will make a folder for the episode it asks me what the episode number is so it knows what number to look for in all these files it'll make a new folder in Dropbox uh, we have uh, template files for the show notes and for the markers and it'll take it'll download both of those files it's the same file every week the template and then it will upload them into this week's folder rename them with the name of the current episode and then I'm ready to edit them as well. So that's probably my most complex Dropbox workflow and it's really nice because it kind of sets up all the files we need, the folders we need and so on. Uh, and then it downloads Federico's file and opens it in a local app as well. And that all runs in maybe, I don't know, five, six seconds. Something nice. Like that. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Uh, the next action is, is a, this is an easy one. It's called Get Items from Pocket. And if you use Bucket, it's a, it's a read later service, uh, similar to Instapaper. Um, and it's very popular because it's a, it's a free one. And it, with this action, you can authenticate with your Pocket account. And then you can um, use this action to return articles or videos, uh, any item that you save to Pocket. You can specify, I want to have unread articles or I want to return a bunch of archived items and even all uh, items from your pocket account, whether they're in your reading queue or if they've, they've already been archived. And you can even filter, filter these items by, uh, with a search query or with a tag. But these articles 
So this is really convenient to, to, to you know, if you use Pocket a lot and if you want to get some items, this is, re is really useful because there's no other way to do that with automation on iOS. But these items will be returned as links, URLs, that you need to do something with on your own. And my advice would be, um, if you want to fetch details for these articles, the best way is to combine the resulting link from the pocket action with the get details of articles action in workflow. So the, the article typing workflow uses um, a web service behind the scenes. It's called diffbot. You never, you never see this. You, you don't have to know this. But it's basically a way to extract specific information from, a, from, a, from an article on the web. And because you pass a URL... Workflow knows that, okay, so you just passed a link. Now you're using get details of articles. That means I need to open this web page behind the scenes and get the details that the user wants. And you can extract stuff like the author name of a story or the publication date or the featured image. You can extract all of, you know, all of these different bits of um, details about, a, about an article on the web, which could be, you know, could be useful if you want to have you know, if I want to build a custom, for example, pocket sharing workflow, let's say I want to get my last five items that I archived in pocket and I want to share them with details about the author and the website and the publication date. Well, I can do that with workflow. It's really useful. Um, the next one, Fraser, is, is a service that I use a lot. I don't know if you're, if you're a fan, but it's, um, do you use Trello much? I have only heard of Trello. I've never actually used it for any project, so you're going to have to take this one away and, and educate me as well here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we use Trello at Mac Stories a lot. It's a project management service. It's based on this idea of the Kanban um, type of interface. It's uh, basically organized in lists on a horizontal kind of pane, and there's uh, this metaphor of cards that you drag and drop across lists. Um, and we use it at, at Mac Stories to organize our um, editorial calendar for the Club Mac Stories news newsletters and for the website. And it's really convenient because you organize basically sections or, for example, weeks into columns, and then you drag and drop items as cards. And um, the integration with Workflow is excellent because you can, you can create new cards from Workflow. And like to do is you can specify a whole bunch of details like the name of a card or the board, which is the project in, in Trello's terminology. Uh, you can specify the list. You can add comments. You can add links to the, to the body of a, of, a, of a comment field of a, of a card. And I use this a lot, especially because it's, it's quite convenient to integrate Trello with a custom workflow um, that allows me to save either web pages or apps from the App Store into Trello. And I do this, again, because the Trello extension, the default one, it doesn't offer me the kind of control that Workflow gives me. So for an example, if I come across an app that I want someone of the Mac Stories team to review, I have this custom workflow that I run inside the App Store. So as I'm looking at an app, I run this workflow. And the workflow takes the icon of the app, the price, the description, the link, and it creates this custom visual card in Trello that uses the icon of the app as a, as a, as a featured uh, image. 
and then the name of the app as the name of the card, and then details about the description of the App Store uh, product, and the link as the body text of the card in trial. It's super cool and it's super convenient. And again, just need to authenticate into a trial account with workflow and you you can create whatever you want. Interesting. I must check out Trello some more. I looked at it back in the early days when it first came to iOS and I can see it'll be interesting. And I think there might be, uh, there could be some cool uses of that for managing the school year as well. You know, when you said, you know, use weeks as lists yeah. in, in Trello, that is thinking, well, you know, school is organized around weeks, isn't it? You know, and we could, uh, we could have some interesting uses of that too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah basically the, uh, the entire club, especially club McSorys runs on Trello. Uh, we use it so much. We have some crazy uh, Zapier uh, workflows for the web that anytime a reader, for example, sends us a question, it, it, it sends a question with a Google form and we have a Z- Zapier automation that converts the Google form into a Trello card. So anytime a question comes in, it goes into a list called member questions. And when when we decide, okay, this week I want to answer this person because it, you know I want to tackle this problem that we just drag and drop the card into the list for the current week. We use it so much. Cool. Um, yeah, it's very cool. Also, the, the official mascot of Trello is a, is a cute dog. So, you know, bonus points. What more could you want? Yeah. There you go. Finally, Fraser. This is the big w- one. WordPress. Yeah. This is by far the workflow. Actually, one of the two workflows that I use the most. The other one is a workflow to combine screenshots together. But this one... All the the articles, with a few rare exceptions for like the iOS 10 review, um, but all the articles, the posts that you see by me on MacStories are published with this workflow. It's a it's called the Publish to WordPress Action, and it lets you publish text or photos to your WordPress blog. It can be, I think, it can be both a self-hosted WordPress blog or a WordPress.com one. And the beauty of this action is that as long as you can share text with the share sheet and therefore with the workflow extension your text editor of choice can be whatever you want you're not limited to write from the wordpress app you don't have to stick with a particular text editor because it's got wordpress integration as long as you can share text with the share sheet and send it to the workflow extension you can switch as many text editors as you want which is what i've been doing because the output will always be the same i have a workflow that takes some markdown text sent from any text editor I might use, whether it's uh, Ulysses or IA Writer or, I don't know, Bear, even, the Notes app. And from that text, I do some reformatting because of some custom Mac Story stuff that we do. And then in the action, in the WordPress action, you can say, I, d- I don't care about the advanced stuff, so take out the advanced option, I don't need them. But if you want, you can change the slug, uh, which is the permalink of a, of a post on WordPress, um, you can set custom fields even, but the basic stuff is you can set a category, you can set a title, and you can add some tags. So these are the default, WordPress calls them the taxonomies, I think, uh, tags and categories. And this is a custom WordPress interface that can be available anyway, anywhere you want. You can customize it to your needs. And again, you have the freedom to, to say the only recurring item is my workflow extension. The only constant is workflow. Everything else I can change. This is why I'm free to try a bunch of different text editors 
and change between them is needed. Because in the end, the workflow extension with the WordPress action, it's always the same. I can always publish to my blog. Seriously, it's, it's an impressive action. It is it's so impressive some of the stuff you've done with this that I've actually been thinking about moving my blog from Squarespace to WordPress <laughs> just to use this action. Just, yes. I mean, it, it, I say just to use the action, but the, the point you make there about being able to uh, use any text editor you want is, is really compelling because when you work with Squarespace, you've got to use the Squarespace app. And, and that has uh, had its challenges over the years and, and only recently got updated for the iPad Pro, for example. Um Whereas if I was on WordPress, I'd be able to do exactly what you've just described, which is to use, you know, whatever text editor I like, OneWriter or Ulysses. Ulysses has got its own integration, but, uh, you know, any of these or even just the Notes app and share. And that yes. would be yep. uh, the takeaway. A lot of the friction, I think, that I kind of feel with blogging on iOS because of the Squarespace app. Uh, and I'm quite interested about how that might work for me. Yeah, you should do it. You should do it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a Christmas project for me. All right, there you there go. You go. Now, Federico, can I tell you it's something that I love? Sure. Because I have been actually quite excited all week just to <laughs> do always, this sponsor. <laughs> it's always good when you're excited to do the sponsor. It's a good yeah. sign. I, I, I don't know of, of any company that is more suitable to sponsor a podcast that I'm on than this company, except <laughs> maybe Apple itself. I don't know if we're going to land Apple, but maybe one day. But this show is brought to you by Tom Bin, And I'm super uh, excited about this because yes. I love everything that Tom Bin produced. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Tom Bin is uh, a company that makes awesome bags right in the USA, uh, right in Seattle. Uh, their website is tombin.com. That's T-O-M-B-I-H-N.com. And I really recommend you check them out. Uh, I want to tell you about something that I love. And then Federico, I know you've got a favorite as well. Yeah. My my personal favorite that I has this bag has gone all over the world with me over the past couple of years since I've had it is a bag that they have called the Aeronaut Forty Five. The Forty Five indicates it's a forty five liter bag, and it's a it's what you sort of would describe as maybe a three way uh, carry on bag. So it's sized just exactly to match the carry on frames that they have at the airport, where you've got to drop your bag in, and if it doesn't fit, they make you check it in at the gate. Uh, the Aeronaut Forty Five has been everywhere with me. I've taken it on two-week trips to the United States. Once you pack it, learn how to pack it. And it's a bit of, uh, there's, there's an art to it as well as a science. But uh, I'm now able to do a full two-week trip just with that bag. And it is so cool. Uh, it has essentially a big U-shaped zip and a big, big main compartment and then two end pockets. But what's really cool about it is that you can zip the divider between the end pockets and you can trade off space in the pocket for space in the bag. So if you've got, you know, a suit or something to take, then you can space out the main pocket. If you want to take, you know, two pairs of shoes, put one pair in one end, put one pair in the other end. And then you can either put a shoulder strap on it and carry it like a backpack uh, or carry it with a, um, a carrying handle that's on one side as well. So my Aeronaut 45, it's a navy blue one uh, with a red interior, which I absolutely love. Uh, it's very... Um, how do you say indiscreet, I think? It's, it doesn't really attract a lot of attention. It just, you look a little bit like a Ghostbuster with it on, which kind of <laughs> makes me feel quite cool as well. Um, it's just a, a chunky big bag. Uh, it does a great job for me and it has, it's been everywhere with me and it looks as good as new, which is something that I think is really cool as well. These, these bags take a, a heck of a beating and they just keep going as well. So the Aeronaut 45 is one of my favorites. And Figurico, I know you've got something quite a lot smaller that you love yeah. as well. 
Yeah, for years I used a Tombin Ristretto bag. Back when I used to have either an iPad Air or an iPad Mini, I took that Ristretto bag with me everywhere. And I mean everywhere, on vacation, at home, uh, at the beach. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I took it everywhere. Then uh, last year, actually earlier this year, because I stuck with the Tombin Ristretto even after I got the big iPad Pro. But it was a little, you know... The, it couldn't fit basically inside. Mm -hmm. But I knew I wanted to have another Tombin product because I was so happy. I mean, I used the Ristretto for like four, five years maybe. Yep. So I knew I wanted to get another one from them. And I went with the Daylight Briefcase, which is the this $80 bag. Um, it's a laptop-sized bag. It's, meant, it's perfect for uh, the MacBook or the 12.9-inch iPad Pro. And as... Tom Bean's tradition, uh, the, the, the nylon material, super nice, super high quality, lots of pockets, lots of compartments. Um, I can carry around my iPad Pro, a keyboard, some wireless headphones, an external battery, and lots of cables and dongles and adapters, and there's room to spare. Um, I got also the absolute shoulder strap upgrade, which is $20, uh, because it's super comfortable and I barely, uh, I barely feel the, the, the strap around my shoulder and I got it in the, it's called the linen, uh, steel variation, the color, uh, which I think, again, it looks, uh, it looks very classy, very elegant. And I'm, I'm, I'm really a big fan of, of Tom Bean. I, to be fair, I only had two products in my life, but also that speaks to their quality because in mm -hmm. almost eight years, uh, seven years and a half of working with, you know, for Mac stories and having to carry around iPads and iPhones and accessories, I only bought two bags from them. So this is quality stuff. It lasts over time because it's made of quality materials. And whenever it's time to replace my dead briefcase, probably in another five years, uh, I will buy again from Tombin just because I love the company so much. Absolutely. That that shoulder strap that you mentioned also works on the Aeronaut as well. Yeah. It's uh, almost all their bags. There are some bags that have got sewn in straps. I've got one called the Medium Cafe bag, which has got a sewn in strap. But for the bags that have got a detachable strap, you can buy maybe just one of those shoulder straps and you can use it on whatever bag you happen to pick up at that time. So it's it's really nice, a whole nice system. And there's all kinds of accessories that go along with them as well. The little pouches and key straps to strap in your keys to the bag and things like that as well. So you can check them all out at tombin.com. That's T-O-M-B-I-H-N.com. Three things to know. Lifetime guarantee. So if you ever do have a problem, which is unlikely, you, they will always fix it for you. Superior construction, as we've mentioned, and of course, thoughtful design, which is something that I really love about it. I find that that Aeronaut 45, I thought I had it full. And then whenever I buy some stuff on a trip, I can always fit it in as well. So really, really great design as well. So thank you to Tom Binn for supporting Canvas and all of Really FM. So Federico, back to the web, back to yes. APIs. Now, okay. this is where it gets a little technical. Right? This is the Fraser Explains section okay. <laughs> of, of the show. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, how do you go from 
knowing using these built-in actions, the ones that the workflow team have have sort of uh, built you a nice interface for. How do you go from there to working with a raw web API by itself? Now, when we say an API, that's short for application programming interface, and and what that really is is it's when a service provides you with certain uh, functions that you can call in order to get something done on their service, and. For the most part, and there are various ways that these can be built, but for the most part, a lot of web services use a technology called REST. And what REST does is it's a way of using the commands that are built into the HTTP protocol to have an effect on the service at the other end. So you don't never see this when you're using a web browser, but when you work with HTTP, you like to download a web page, there are actually five uh, what are called verbs or methods in HTTP that are commonly used. And they are called GET, put, post, patch, and delete. And of those five, Workflow supports four of them. Workflow does not support the delete method, but it supports the other four. And what they do is they're often used, now how they're exactly used in any service is up to the developers of the service. But commonly speaking, the get method is used to retrieve some information from the remote side. So whenever you browse the web, for example, your browser is doing get requests all the time to download images and scripts and HTML that's part of the page you're looking at. The put command will usually modify something that already exists. The post command will usually be used to create a new item on the remote side. And patch allows for a partial update of an item that's already that already exists without having to resend the whole item. So for example, if you were to upload a large video file, but you wanted to change some metadata about it, a service might allow you to send a patch command where you don't have to send the video file again, but you can send new metadata and it will patch over the old information with the new information that you send. Now, how do you know which one of these to use? Well, this is the part that kind of becomes out of the scope of any one podcast because it depends on the service you're trying to script against. But what you would do is you would look at the documentation for your web API and it would probably say, use a get request to do this, 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 and this. Use a post request for this and this. And use a, a, a put request for this and this. So again, depending on what it is you're trying to do, one or other of those verbs will probably do for you. So how does this work in Workflow? Well, at the end of the day, you have to use the action called get contents of URL. Now, there's a basic version of that, which is you just have a URL and you say, get the contents of that. And that will do a basic get request, pull down that web page or image and pass it on to the next thing in your workflow. But when you bring in that action into workflow, there's an advanced section that you can open up. And in there, that's where all the magic happens. And in there, you can do things like select one of the four methods, get, put, post, and patch. And then you can configure the request. Now, again, how you configure the request is highly dependent on the service you're trying to talk to. But there's really two parts to a request. There's the headers, and then there's the body. Now, the headers are metadata about the request that you're sending. So a header is a a key and a name for the field, and then the contents of the field itself. So for example, um, perhaps a poor example, think about security first, but just imagine this for the sake of simplicity that you would have a username and a password header and the username field would have, you know, the value of the username you're trying to log into 
and the password field would have the password that you're trying to log into. Now, most because the security of most web services are more sophisticated than that, but that's just a simple example of what you might have as two uh, key value pairs in headers. But the API will tell you uh, what you need to send as headers in order to get the effect that you want. Now, bear in mind that you can use variable substitution all the way through here. So anywhere where you're filling in a, a header field or a body field, you can substitute in a variable that you've calculated or extracted some at some earlier point in your workflow. The next thing is to build the body of the request. And then again, this is whatever form the API wants it to be. But workflow supports three kinds of body type. Uh, the most common one in terms of web programming is called a form. And then you also have ones called JSON and a file. Now, JSON is short for JavaScript object notation. And what that is, is textual. It's not JSON Snell. It's not JSON Snell, no. <laughs> J-S-O-N, right, not J-A. Um, and what that is, is it's a textual representation of data. So, for example, if you have a list of names, for example, and they're stored as, as a list or an array in your program, you could send that array via JSON by encoding it. And essentially what it does is it has curly braces to indicate the beginning and end of the array and then a comma to separate every item in the array. And JSON is easy for a program to generate and it's easy for the program on the other side to parse it into uh, a data structure that it has on, on the far side. It's kind of like a simpler version of XML. Many people have sort of heard of XML. Um, and many web services now accept input and also produce output uh, using a JSON format, whereas previously, you know, five, five years ago or so, they would only have supported XML. So JSON is, is really powerful there. And it's great, for example, if you want to download a feed, many of the kind of feeds like, you know, latest earthquakes or the latest football scores or something, a lot of them provide you with JSON information. And this is a way that you can deal with that. Forms of the traditional web form approach where you have the names of data fields and values are all encoded inside the body of the request. And then file is commonly used for uploading a file. So say, for example, you wanted to, wanted to uh, post a picture to Flickr or upload a file to maybe Dropbox or something like that. You could, if you want, if you didn't want to use the built-in stuff, you could you know, put a file into that part of the request and workflow would send it up to the service for you. So those, those are the basics. That's how you configure it in Workflow. And then the next question, of course, is how do you work with the results in Workflow? So once you run your request, you're going to get the output of that is going to be whatever the web service, the remote side sends back to you. And then you've got to use that in your program. So again, this depends on the API, but typically you'll get back some text, probably JSON, and then you use an action called get dictionary from input to turn that JSON text into something you can work with in Workflow. Now, what, do you mean, what does it mean by dictionary? Well, a dictionary in programming terms is a collection of data items, each containing a key and a value. Kind of like the headers. The headers are essentially a dictionary as well, where you have a key, which is a, a piece of text, and then against that key is stored a value. So you might have something like um, file size, and then the value of that would be a certain number of bytes. Uh, file name, and there would be a name for the file. File type, and there would be a type for the file. And that would be sort of information that you could retrieve about uh, a resource on the internet somehow. Now, Workflow has actions to create dictionaries, but when you're working with web APIs, you can actually uh, just go into the dictionary you're sent back. And if you ask for a specific key, 
you will be able to extract a specific bit of information from the dictionary. So you might say, uh, just get me the file size dictionary item and you can pull that out and work with that as the next step of your workflow. And if the dictionaries are nested, you can use multiple get dictionary value actions in a row to navigate the hierarchy. So you can say, you know, take this dictionary, get me this value. That value itself might be another dictionary, right? It's sort of inception style programming at this point. Dictionary, get one field, oh, it's a dictionary as well, go in there and get a key out. And that's quite a common uh, programming model when you're dealing with web APIs. So that's the basics. You use the uh, get contents of URL, open the advanced section, and then in there you can configure the request. And then once you get the information back, you can turn it into a dictionary and start trying to pull bits out of the dictionary. And again, uh, the content graph can be your helper. Uh, and also the quick look action. Both of those can really help you to sort of understand what you're getting back. Because quite often it's not that intuitive and the documentation is not always that clear. So that's another way to kind of help you through what it is you're trying to do. Yeah, that's a perfect explanation, really. Okay, good. <laughs> yes. No, yeah. I mean, you, you know so much more about this stuff than I do. Um, when when I put together the uh, some a API workflows, I, I basically just <laughs> looked around on Google and stuck <laughs> overflow a lot. Well, Whereas, that's what programming is now. Yeah, you you but you actually know what all of this stuff means, and especially the stuff with the dictionaries and mm -hmm. uh, explaining the concept of a dictionary, and and especially when you get into the stuff with like nested dictionaries, like a mm -hmm. dictionary inside another dictionary, that can be quite tricky. But I think yeah, we can, it can be. we can we can explain with. Uh, I I have a few examples that I think can can give people uh, a quick idea of what can be done with workflow and web APIs. But before we do that, Fraser, I know you really want to talk about another sponsor today. Yeah, we, this is our first episode with two sponsors and we are very pleased to bring you this episode with the help of Sanebox as well. Now, email is a crushing thing. It's currently crushing me. My inbox is out of control and I'm sure that everyone listening to the show has got something that they don't like about the email they receive or the features that the app that you use has. But Sanebox is here to help bridge those gaps and solve those problems because one of the things you can't do with email is just delete everything. All of our email goes to the same place and it all looks the same. It wouldn't it be nice to just clear it all out? But you can't because there's some important stuff in there you need to deal with and it just looks the same as everything else. Wouldn't it be great if your email could be pre-sorted before it even hits your inbox? Imagine if the only email that lands your inbox is stuff you actually need to see. And this is really what Sanebox does. So Sanebox will sort through all your email and it'll move all the trivial stuff into a different folder so only the messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want. The great thing is it works on top of your current setup. So it, with any app you want to use, all the sandbox magic happens before you ever see it. And aside from removing all the junk so you can focus on messages that matter, there's a great feature called the black hole. And you just move an email into that folder and you will never hear from the sender again, just like magic. You can set up email reminders so you can follow up on them later. You can snooze email to deal with it later. And so many great features you can, you can build into any kind of workflow. Uh, speaking of people who build things into workflows, Federico, tell me a little bit about your life with Sanebox. I love Sanebox, really. I, I've been using it for more than two months at this point. And I can say, honestly, I had never been so happy with email than since I started using Sanebox. I, I rely on Sanebox quite heavily to make sense of the emails that I get every day and because of my email is public on the on my website and there's a lot of people emailing me you know asking to hey check out my app or you know PR people all kinds of emails 
And I want to separate those emails. I want to organize them in categories. But I want to do them on my own. So I use Sanebox. And Sanebox, what it does is it puts the important stuff in my inbox. So when I see an email in the inbox, 90% of the time, even more, 95% of the time, I know that's something I care about, something I should get on right away. I got to, you know, respond to that email or at least I got to read it as soon as possible. Everything else uh, goes into the same later folder or into the same news folder. Um, Organizes newsletters for me, emails that I, you know, don't come from important contacts or people that I usually talk to. And that's the great thing because Sanebox, in addition to learning on its own, it also learns from you. So, you know, it takes a look at the people you respond to or you can create your own rules and you can say, you got to make this person an important one. And whenever the person sends me an email, you need to put that email in my inbox because I need to see it. You can do all of that in Sanebox. And my favorite feature is also the fact that when it's the weekend and I have time to relax, I can open the same news folder and I can find all the newsletters that I missed during the week. So because it's a weekend and I have more time, I can read those newsletters now. And they're all available in the same news folder. No manual filing required on my end because Sanebox does it for me. I use Sanebox so much. Um, I'm going to have an article on Mac Stories next week uh, with, a, with a section all about Sanebox and all about the email workflow that I have on iOS. Uh, it's going to be interesting, I think, for people to check it out. But yes, I'm a, I'm a huge Sanebox fan. I cannot recommend it enough. Awesome. Looking forward to that. So we do have a, a good deal on Sandbox for you today. Uh, you can go to sanebox.com slash canvas and you'll get an extra $20 credit on top of the two-week free trial that they already have. So you don't have to enter your credit card information unless you're going to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. So you can check it out today and get your email finally under control, and that's sanebox, S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com forward slash canvas. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show tonight. Now, examples of APIs. Okay. Let's, let's try and dive in here. Okay, I, I, I prepared three examples just because okay. there's infinite APIs on the web yep. and we need, we need to, to be picky at some point. Um, before I begin, Fraser, can you tell our listeners quickly about the concept of an API endpoint? Okay, so, so an API endpoint is, is some, uh, I mentioned REST earlier on, and REST basically involves um, you connecting to a specific URL. So it might be, you know, my service slash API slash something, something, something. And that's what you connect to when you do get contents of URL. Now, just downloading that is probably not enough. You probably need to configure headers, maybe a request body uh, in order to get the other side to give you back the right information. But in general, that's what we mean by an API endpoint. So it's a specific URL on a site where if you request that, instead of getting a web page back, you will get JSON or XML or some other kind of response that you're looking for. Perfect. So also make sure to always, when you have an idea of a service that you want to experiment with, with an API in workflow, make sure to always check out the documentation for that service first on their website. They usually have a developer website where you can go and you can read about the API. And the first thing you should do, read about authentication. What you need to do 
to authenticate with a web service with an API, whether it's a username or email and a password. Do you need to encrypt that password? Uh, do you need to encode that in Base64? Or do you need to generate a token? Do you need to work with OAuth? Do you need to, you know, there's a whole bunch of uh, different authentication systems. Always make sure to read the documentation first. Now, with that said, the first workflow that I made when I started playing with the workflow API stuff is uh, actually a combination of two workflows to, uh, for time tracking. So I'm using Toggle, which is this uh, time tracking service, because I want to understand where my time is going, uh, how I spend my time during the day. And anytime I stop doing something and I start doing something else, I start a timer. But doing that... Uh, on the so Toggle doesn't have a great iPhone app. They don't have an iPad app and the website in Safari. You know, I don't want to use a website. So I made a workflow. <laughs> I made a workflow that it makes it super easy to start a new timer from a widget on iOS. So the great thing about this workflow is uh, it does a bunch of API calls to the Toggle API. First thing it does is it checks if an existing timer is already running. Because if a timer is running, you don't want to start a new one because either you forgot or because you got to finish whatever you're doing. So it checks for a timer. If there's no timer, it continues. And it says, okay, uh, you want to start a new timer. What are you doing? This is the, same que the, the first question that the workflow asks. And this is made of a template of a list that I actually made on my own in workflow because I know that usual activities that I do during the day, whether it's uh, reading, or I'm, you know, wasting too much time on Twitter, or I'm catching up on RSS. So I made a list of my activities. And then the workflow, what it does is it starts talking with the Toggle API, and it says, I want to create a new time entry. Um, and it, when it creates the time entry, besides passing, you know, the name of the activity, the ID of the project, which is also previously fetched from an API, it needs to do some date calculations. And if you're a programmer, you know the date calculations are terrible. And uh, they're, they t date calculations and time zone conversions, they tend to be the toughest, toughest challenges to overcome when you're doing any kind of programming. And of course, I had a bad time <laughs> with uh, with date calculations with the Toggle API, but this is quite common to a lot of web services, so it's a valuable lesson you can take away. There's a concept called um, Epoch, I think, mm -hmm. and it's it basically it's a, it's a standard to calculate dates starting from January first, nineteen seventy, at midnight. I don't. Uh, is there any reason, Fraser, that they chose this date, the, the Unix date also called? Um, the reason is, is that computers internally represent time as a number of seconds since that time, or a number yeah. of milliseconds, depending on the resolution. Um, and I think it was just uh, a reasonably well-agreed-on date that, you know, at some point people decided that was when they were going to calculate from, because yeah, no, no, no digital computers existed before then, sure. maybe, or something like that. Sure. Um, yeah. So the, the, the microprocessor here all started sort of after that. So I think that was considered to be like year zero. Yeah. Because um, when they were working in the 70s and uh, they're starting to build that, well, let's just start with the first day of this decade, you know. Yeah. And it's just persisted ever since because it's not worth the effort to change it, I don't think. Got it. Except okay. there, there was a problem at one point recently where... Uh, 
32-bit computers had been around for more seconds than could oh, be yes. represented in the 32 bits. Um, so the, there was a little bit of a kind of mini Y2K problem at one point, but we, we managed to come through that without hmm. too much bother. So w the problem I was having is uh, when you talk to the toggle API in workflow, and you, you do all of the things that Fraser mentioned, you do the get contents of URL, it returns a bunch of JSON dictionaries, then you use get dictionary value. And a quick tip, if you're dealing with nested dictionaries, so a dictionary that contains another dictionary, you can first you can check that this is actually happening by putting the quick look action after a get contents of URL. You will see the whole structure of a dictionary in plain text. But if you need to navigate this dictionary, if you need to say, uh, I need to go into this first dictionary, so that's the first level, then I need to go into the second one, you can just combine uh, multiple get dictionary value actions to just put two of them in a row. And you will effectively, it's like you will walk the steps inside the dictionary and you will go into the deeper level. It's like inception, but for web programming, basically. And <laughs> so I, I needed to do a whole bunch of that. And then I came across the date calculation and I wasn't understanding uh, because there was a time elapsed value in the toggle API. And it was a long string that didn't make any sense. In my mind, the time elapsed was going to be either a, you know, a readable string of text, like, I don't know, two hours and 20 minutes. Instead, it was the seconds that have passed since January 1st, 1970 at midnight, <laughs> up until the moment when I started the timer. So it was like, I don't know how many millions and billions mm -hmm. of seconds. So I needed to do that calculation with Workflow, but thankfully Workflow has a calculate date action that makes it super easy to do that. You know, you can actually date do, and we talked about this, where you can do date, subtractions, um, addic additions, it's, it's very powerful. So I did that and, you know, uh, I was able to put together a toggle workflow and now whenever I need to start a timer, I just use a widget. Also, interesting note, if a timer already exists, as I mentioned, I want to stop the timer. And to do that, Workflow needs to use a put request, which modifies what already exists on the API. And by modifying that, it means, well, there's a timer, I'm going to stop the timer. So I, I use this Workflow Fraser dozens of times every day. You know, it's very, very convenient. And you have just one Workflow, you don't have two? So you've got one that starts... Uh, it starts and stops, or have you get one for starting? I, one I for have stopping? two. The the one to okay. stop, basically the one to start. If a work, if a timer already exists, it just says you have a timer. It's been running for X time. Okay. Um, and then I run a second workflow, which is called a stop timer, to just get the current timer, double check that it's been running for you know uh, some time, and stop it. So yeah, I keep two of them. I could probably just go with one for workflow, but I think it's more convenient to have two separate workflows. Mm -hmm. The second cool. one um, is a workflow for Slack. And it uses the Slack API, also from a widget, to snooze notifications. Uh, Slack has a do not disturb feature. It's kind of like the do not disturb feature of iOS. And it lets you set uh, an amount of minutes that you want to not receive notifications from a Slack team that you're part of. But it takes too many taps to enable do not disturb on Slack for iOS. So I made a workflow that it talks to the Slack API. You need to have a, an access token 
but you don't, you know, it's not complicated. You just need to go to the Slack API webpage. You can generate uh, a test token. So just for you, it's not a, you know, you don't have to do any complex, you know, authentication. It's just a token. You can paste it in one password and keep it around. And what it does is, a, is a, it's a post request to the Slack API with an, an amount of minutes this is not seconds with a date calculation, an <laughs> amount of minutes that you want to snooze notifications for. It's very easy, really. Uh, so I can say I, I, I put together a menu that says I want to snooze for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, or an hour, two hours, six hours, 12 hours, if I really wanna, <laughs> don't want to be disturbed. Um, and it's very simple. It uses a form type with a post request, talks to the Slack API, and also... Um, it again, it checks if the snooze is already enabled because there's a separate API endpoint to see if snooze is already on. And at the end, it doesn't have to do a date calculation um, to you know for ca to calculate the snooze seconds and basically to see when it will end. You can pass the amount of minutes you want to enable snooze for, but to see when in the future it will end. Slack also uses the Epoch time standard. So I needed to do some of that. But, you know, no big deal. Yeah, that's cool. These these are some of the, the real issues around about web API programming. You've got to think about how do you authenticate. And we've used the word access token a couple of times. And just to clarify, what an access token usually is, is it's a long string of random text that looks yes. kind of like a password. <laughs> yeah. um, you, you may be surprised at how long and how random it actually <laughs> appears. That is actually the token usually. Um, and what that often does, is it, it, it's like for the service so that they, they know who's coming in uh, on their API, but also if somebody writes a script that is abusing the API in some way, which of course is quite easy to do because you could write a script that just hammers the API over and over again. And that would cause a service degradation for everybody else using the service they can actually cut off your API key as well, um, which is, is something that some services have, have done uh, from time to time. And what that lets them do is it lets them control who are the big users of the API and who are not. And then if you're a really big user, they might come and ask you for some money for that. You know, But you're not Google and you're not Microsoft or whoever, so you're not going to be sending that amount of traffic from your one workflow script, I'm pretty sure. No. <laughs> um, finally, final example, something fun, Spotify. Unlike Apple Music, they have an open web API. You can do all kinds of crazy things with it. Uh, in fact, I will have sometime in the future, I think, for uh, Club Max Source members, a pretty crazy uh, Spotify workflow. But for now, something that doesn't require authentication, it's an open and free API endpoint, which is used to get the details of a Spotify song. And as the verb implies, it's a get request, and it basically uses a song ID to extract all of the details that Spotify has about a song. The way that you can get a song ID is not super convenient. You need to use the Spotify app on your iOS device. You need to copy the link of a song. And unfortunately, Spotify kind of buries the... Uh, option to copy a link into custom share menu but once you have that you can run the workflow and it will talk to, it will basically do um, a regular expression to take the link 
and extract just the bit, uh, so the alphanumeric ID of a song from the URL using uh, Regex. Once you have the ID, Spot uh, Workflow can talk to the Spotify API uh, with a GET request. It will basically pass a dictionary that contains the song ID. And it will also, um, I'm sorry, I don't think it will actually pass this dictionary. I think it just passes a header with the song ID, but it does receive a dictionary. And from the dictionary, you can go crazy. You can extract all of the info that Spotify sees about a song. This is, of course, the title, the duration, the name of the artist, the name of the album, if a song belongs to an album, um, various sizes for the album artwork of a song, um, the year it came out, the genre, the uh, all kinds of metadata about a song you can get from the Spotify API. And I, and I created this workflow as part of a bigger, let's say the bigger workflow that I call the, Spoti the Spotify Center. And it's a widget that I, that I keep in my, in my, on my iPhone and on my iPad. Whenever I copy a link uh, of a song from Spotify, I run this workflow. And what I can do is, the reason I, I needed to talk to the Spotify API is, I want to get the details of a song. So the name of the song, the name of the artist, the name of the album. So I can then look up the same song with these variables returned from the API into Apple Music. And this allows me to basically put together a custom sharing menu for Spotify that allows me to share a song with two links, one for Spotify, one for Apple Music for the same song. So all of my Twitter followers are happy because whenever I share a song, I get you know the replies of, but what's the Apple Music link or what's the Spotify link? So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to use the Spotify API. So whenever I want to share a song, I'm going to share it with both the links. But I don't want to do that manually. I don't want to open Apple Music and copy and paste. Uh, just use Workflow. So because I get those details from the API, I can just put those variables into the search music action in Workflow. And then it's just a matter of confirming the result, you know, getting the link and putting together the custom message. And Pretty cool. There you go. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, we have just barely scratched the surface of what could be, you know, Crazy amount of stuff. Just one other example. I don't actually have a workflow for this, but I have an API that I could use, <laughs> which is um, a school. We have a device management server for all of our iPads, um, and it actually provides an API as well. Uh, and I'm curious to see, you know, how how could I go about, you know, maybe building some workflows that can do things like find me the top ten, you know, most full iPads in the school, or find me all the names of people who have not updated to latest iOS or something like that. And all of those things could be possible with workflow as well. So uh, I'm inspired to go and try some new things as well. So I've got myself quite a lot of Christmas projects in this show already. Yes. That's at least two. Uh, just you know, trivially translate uh, your blog to WordPress and then I'm going to build some APIs as well. So that is Canvas 25. We've been talking about workflow and the web APIs. Uh, there's so much you can get into there. We hope we've at least inspired you to look at a couple of things that are possible uh, and look at your favorite web services with a new eye, which is not just the website and the interface and the app, but there may be a, a lower level that you can work with it as well. You can find show notes for this show at relay.fm slash canvas slash 25. 
Thank you to our two sponsors this week, Tombin, uh, makers of the most awesome bags in the world, and Sinbox, who helped Federico keep his emails straight every week. We are on Twitter. The show is underscore Canvas FM. I'm Fraser Spears. Federico is Vitici. And we will see you next week for the last episode in our workflow series. Thanks for listening.